All right, well, last, uh, last week, we're in the book of Acts, and we made it through Paul's first missionary journey. Tonight, we'll pick up with Acts chapter 15, which was uh, uh, the council in Jerusalem, and then after 15, we'll start off into the second missionary journey of Paul and see how far we get. Acts 15 starts out, certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren. This is down to um, Antioch, where Paul was based. Up, It's really north, but they call it down. And taught them, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So, you know, the Gentiles had come and heard the gospel and accepted Christ and they're like so excited and they're really growing, the church is booming. And then here come these guys from Jerusalem going, well, yeah, the good news is you can be saved. The bad news is you're going to have to have a little surgery. And you can imagine that's not the greatest thing to hear that, oh, all we need to do now is get circumcised and then obey the whole law. And so they were concerned, but that's what these guys were telling them. And so when Paul and Barnabas in verse 2 had no small dissension and dispute with them. They really argued against this. And they all, all finally said, Paul and Barnabas and some other guys should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So when these guys weren't able to out-argue Paul, and let's face it, who could out-argue Paul? They said, well, you need to go talk to the apostles there in Jerusalem because they're really going to be into this, and I'm sure they'll agree with us. And so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. And so Phoenicia is on the coast of Israel, uh, where present-day Lebanon is. And so they came down that way. In fact, um, if you have it, let's just go ahead and put the slide up. We'll be using it later, but that slide of the second missionary journey. Sorry if you're listening to this on a CD and you can't see this, but uh, that's why you should come to church. Um, up here, whoops, go back to the other slide. Up here is where they were based. And there, this, huge, this huge revival was going on in this area of Antioch. And that's the Antioch in Syria, not the Antioch in Pisidia over here in Turkey. So the, you can see Paul's first journey was where he, remember they came down here, they lost John Mark, came up here hit this area, came back again. Um, now they're here, and this is, present-day Israel is right in here to get your bearings. See, Jerusalem's down here. That's the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is right up here. And so today, Israel, what's called the West Bank, is right here, just on the west side of the Jordan River. Egypt is down here. Um, and then over here, you have what's, today called Jordan, and then obviously you still have Syria up here, Iran, Iraq, all that. Saudi Arabia is over here. So they were heading down, and the path that he took from Antioch was to come down the coast, and here where Tyre and Sidon are is, is Phoenicia, and then they came over to Samaria, which is right in here, which is uh, what today we call the West Bank. And this is all Israel, the Gaza Strip is over in this area. So just so you get oriented. And um, 
So they headed down, and as they were telling people what was going on, look what, it, at verse 3, it says, describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. They were thrilled that people were getting saved. Now, they weren't saying, yeah, but, I mean, Gentiles, what are you going to do with them? Um, because they tended to be not as legalistic as the ones who would come from Jerusalem, and they were just excited that people got saved. And that's the way we should be. When some people get saved, we should be excited. And so they were, and it says, when they came to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders. They were glad to see them, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So there were Pharisees. The Pharisees were the group of Jews who were super separatists. They were, I mean, the word means to draw a line around yourself. They were, they had just uh, created these borders and you had to be really strong. Now, Paul understood these guys because he had been a Pharisee himself. But when he got saved and God began to work in his life, he no longer carried that kind of super spiritual legalistic kind of deal because obviously God had called him to Gentiles and that wouldn't fly with them anyhow. So some of these guys, though, they were saved. And there are people who are Pharisees who are saved. I'm sure you've met some of them. But they're wrong, but they're still Christians. But So they began to say, hey, these guys need to keep the law of Moses. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. They said, oh, let's talk about it. And when there had been much dispute, so there were people on both sides of it, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about that time, we saw it a couple weeks ago, when he was at staying at the house of Simon the Tanner there in Joppa, and he was called by God to go up to Cornelius' house in Caesarea and to share the gospel, and those guys got saved. So Peter said, you know, remember, it was through me first that I saw Gentiles getting saved. So God, who knows the heart, acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. They accepted the Holy Spirit just like we did, and they weren't baptized. And he made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. So there was this separation that God did inside of them, and it wasn't necessary for them to go through the mutilation of their flesh in order for that to happen. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Boy, that is, that's a mouthful. He said, you're asking them to do something that, let's face it, we couldn't do what you're talking about, keeping the law. That's such an important thing to keep in mind. And it's always, we should always be thinking in terms of, am I telling people to do something that I can't do? Jesus had said that to the Pharisees before. He said, you lay a burden on people that you yourself aren't willing to bear. One time in a tough counseling situation, I, I was really torn of what to do, and a marriage situation came up, and so I went to Pastor Chuck, and I go, 
I don't know what to tell these people. It's really a difficult situation, but it's kind of nebulous biblically and everything. And Chuck just told me one thing that I tried to remember ever since then when I counsel people. He said, I don't tell people to do something that I don't know if I could do it myself. So really for me, it's turned out the best thing is just not to tell people to do anything. Because everyone's life is different, your problems are your own, and I really just don't want to tell people what to do because I don't know if I could do it. And every once in a while somebody gets bugged at me because like, if a guy's just a complete jerk to his wife and treats her horribly, but he wants me to come and hit her with the Bible and say, just because he hasn't committed adultery, you need to stay with him. That's, you know, that's something that everyone has to deal with on their own, and I have a lot to say about it. But bottom line is, I will not tell someone to do something that I don't know if I could do. And I, and I really think that it's up to the Lord to tell people what they should do. Because of this hypocrisy, the, the gall of someone preaching to someone else about what they should do and going, I can't really live it myself. I'd rather come off as being accused of being kind of flaky or inconsistent or whatever than to be a phony. And, and so with all of my heart, I, I want people to hear that I'm telling you, you need to get close to God and you need to hear what God tells you to do. I'm not a Pharisee. I'm not in the business of telling other people what to do. I, um, you know, there, I find myself saying this often, but Satan is the one who's called the accuser of the brethren. Jesus is the one who is called the defender of the brethren. Jesus is in the presence of God. He forever lives to make intercession for us. Now where whose team you're on can change moment by moment based on whether you find yourself accusing or whether you find yourself defending. But I know whose side I want to be on and consequently, you know, and it's not like if I told people to do the right thing, they would do it anyway because we need to have God work in us to give us the power to do what he wants us to do. And not only that, he wants us to do the right thing for the right reasons. So it's just best to be careful to not be pharisaical and be just all boldly telling people what to do. You know, I, I remember before I had kids, I knew all about kids and how to raise them. And, you know, once you have kids and you realize, shoot, I don't know anything. Um, just like I knew all about marriage till I got married. I found out, what? You know, they never taught me this in school. Um, and nothing's more annoying than to have someone who doesn't have kids telling you how to raise your kids or having somebody who's not married telling you how to be a, a, a partner. So if you really go through it and you really live it, you're not telling anybody what to do. And, and so here, this principle is so important, I think. Don't put a yoke on the disciples that neither our fathers nor we were able to bear but we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Peter's just going, you know what? We didn't get saved by being good people. We got saved by grace. And that's what's going to save them. And so our glorious task is to declare to people God's grace, to free them up from the trips that the world and other people would want to put on them, 
to remove the guilt and blame and all that sort of stuff and just say, you know what? We all just need grace. So accept his grace. Let him, let him love you that way. And so that was Peter's message. And then all the multitude kept silent. <laughs> they didn't say anything. So then Barnabas and Paul started telling stories of what had happened, declaring how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, when they didn't have anything more to say, everyone was just like, hmm, Pharisees weren't popping off anymore. Then James answered. Now this is James, the brother of Jesus. James, the brother of John, who was one of the disciples, had already been killed at this time. James, the brother of Jesus, during the life of Jesus, he was a half-brother, he, he was Mary and Joseph's son, whereas Jesus was the son of Mary and the Holy Spirit. But James, all the time Jesus was alive, didn't believe he was the Messiah. In fact, he and his other family members came to try to tell Jesus just to shut up, making a fool of yourself. But after Jesus showed up, after being dead, James became a believer and he actually became one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. And it's funny because there are people who, and you know, the, the Western church, the Catholic church, um, has Peter as being the head of the church. But if you were going to have someone who was the first pope, uh, which I don't think is necessary and wasn't God's idea at all, but James would actually be a better candidate because he stayed at home in Jerusalem and was obviously leading the church. Peter came and testified at this thing, but James didn't say, well, Pope Peter, what do you think? You know, he, James summed the whole thing up and dealt with it. And, and again, throughout that era of church history, James was the leader of the church there in Jerusalem. Peter traveled around a lot, ended up going to Rome. Paul traveled around a lot. And so James was the guy who, who stayed home. But he answered and said, men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. He said this, Peter didn't make this up. There are Old Testament scriptures that talked about it. And so he, he quoted one from the book of Amos, um, chapter 9. After this, I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. So he said, look, you guys know your Old Testament. The Old Testament said this is what he would do. Known to God from eternity are all his works. God's always known what he was going to do. Therefore, I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them and make a few suggestions that they would abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality or fornication, pornaya, from things strangled, and from blood. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. He goes, Gentiles have been saved through the synagogues all along. Now it's just that God is fulfilling this greater pattern, so let's not dump the law on them. Now, there's a lot of discussion among commentators as to why he even 
picked these four restrictions, which were basically things that had been polluted by idols was probably meat that had been sacrificed to idols. Um, that was something that was really offensive to them. We know Paul in Romans dealt with that later. But secondly, sexual immorality, I mean, they would have already, for a Gentile, you know, meat that's been sacrificed to idols is just meat. It's no big deal. Fornication, certainly they would know that that was wrong. And so he's probably referring to something more specific um, because the other things all have to do with worship. And in those days, and there are a couple of possible explanations. First of all, in those days, fornication wasn't that big of a deal among the Gentiles. They didn't take it seriously. But probably what he's referring to is that they had incorporated fornication or illicit sex into their worship. It was, they thought, the highest offering that you could give to God. And so all of the weird cults and everything around there, all those mystery cults from Babylon and all the Romans and the Greeks would always incorporate homosexuality and um, you know, other forms of fornication right into their temple rituals. And that's, he's probably saying, look, don't do that. Now, there's no reason to believe that they would have, but he is so unfamiliar with Gentile Christians that he's just like, this is probably what they're going to do. So ask them not to do it, to chill on that. And uh, from things strangled, again, um, if you killed something by strangulation, um, then it wasn't done in a kosher way because they believed that, and the Old Testament taught that something should be bled out. Sorry if this is too much detail for you, but that something should be bled out before you would prepare it because the life is in the blood. Now at the same time, in pagan ritual worship, drinking blood was a very usual thing for them for the same reason. They knew that blood was something really special and powerful, and so they figured, you know, this is the highest form of, of partaking. Um, of course, very unhealthy to do that. I don't think we're necessarily under this command today, although I really try not to eat blood. Um, <laughs> but there are a lot of other things I wish the Bible had forbidden that I just don't like. But uh, by the way, it was before the law that they were told to not eat blood. So the kosher part of, of bleeding out an animal before you would cook it actually predates the law. So in some ways, that may have some relevance today. I don't know, but he was just going, that's just gross to us, so please don't do that. Things strangled and from blood. Um, interesting, I mentioned it before, if the um, Catholic Church is correct in that communion turned the wine into the blood of Jesus, as is officially the doctrine of the Catholic Church to this day, although I can rarely find a Catholic that's so hardcore that they actually believe that. But clearly, if it was blood, James didn't think so. Because one of the first things they said, just please don't do that. So that's interesting. Now, but the thing is, why did they even put these rules on? Because later Paul talks about not stumbling people. This wasn't something that God told James to do. This was just something that James thought as a bare minimum, you guys, you can be saved, you don't have to be circumcised, but look, there's a couple things that are a really big deal to us, just please, you know, 
If you do it, don't let us know about it. It'd be nice if out of consideration for us, you wouldn't gross us out by doing these things. So it was probably more a suggestion than some kind of a mandate. And it doesn't say that God told them that necessarily. So, um, but it was something that he threw out there. And Gentiles weren't going to squawk about this. Because if they go, okay, look, you can't drink blood, but you don't have to get circumcised. They're like, no problem. You know, so they felt like they got a good deal. But um, so he went ahead, and everybody liked the idea. And so they, they decided to, in verse 22, it pleased them with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, because Antioch was kind of the center of Gentile gospel. So Paul and Barnabas headed back up there. A guy named Judas went, um, who was bar- named Barsabbas, and Silas, who would later be Paul's partner after he dumped Barnabas. Um, they were leading men among the brethren. So these guys and a bunch of others headed up there. And so they wrote this letter out that kind of laid the whole thing out. And, and uh, they, they called it, they wrote the letter to the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Since we've heard that some who went out from us have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying you must be circumcised and keep the law, and we never told them to do that. They took it upon themselves. It seemed good to us being assembled with one accord to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth, for it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. And he goes on and goes through those rules and says, farewell. So when they were sent off, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced over its encouragement. The people there were blessed that, that the disciples down in Jerusalem were considering them brothers, and also that telling them, you don't have to get into the whole law, um, you can accept just by the grace of God. And so they were encouraged by that. And Judas and Silas were prophets also, and they were exhorting and strengthening the brethren with many words. And after they stayed there, there for a while, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren there in Antioch to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Silas liked what was happening there and decided, I don't need to go back to Jerusalem. I'm going to hang out up here. Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of God with many others also. So after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, hey, let's go check on the churches that we started back in the first missionary journey and uh, visit them where we preached the word of the Lord and let's see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark. He was, John, was, John Mark was his nephew, same guy that wrote the, the Gospel of Mark. And later he became a real close friend of Peter's. Um, remember when Peter got out of prison, went to John Mark's mom's house. Um, so Barnabas wanted to take John Mark. But if you remember, when on the first missionary journey, when they left Antioch right here, first thing they did is come over here to Cyprus. And by the time they got over here to Paphos, when they were going to head over to, to Turkey, to Asia Minor, 
John Mark goes, I'm going home, and he headed back home. So Paul looked on Mark as being a wimp. Barnabas, whose name means, you know, the son of comfort, was like always ready to give a guy another chance, and so they got in a fight about it. Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. He's like, hey, he never even went to any of those churches. Remember, he bailed. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. And so Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, a lot of people would think, oh, that's a terrible thing. These guys got in such a fight that they had to split up. Well, it just depends how you do it. In this case, God had now two missionary teams instead of one. So depending on the attitude and the heart, sometimes splitting up can be a good thing if it means that more ministry gets done as it did in this case. Because now it gave Silas an opportunity to go on the road, which he really wanted to do. But not only that, as we'll see, young Timothy then joined up with Paul and on this missionary journey. And, and Luke ends up joining up with them later as well. And probably that wouldn't have happened if Paul and Barnabas had just gone again by themselves with or without John Mark. Because you know, when two people are together for a long time, they kind of fall into a certain rhythm and, and uh, you can kind of get into a rut. So... They split up, and, and God, interestingly, used that contention to actually make each of them more effective. I don't know if God, you know, if that's why God allowed that to happen. When you talk about God's sovereignty, it's hard to divide between something God made happen and something that he made happen as a response to people's rebellion. I don't think I completely have a good handle on that myself, so... Um, but it happened and it worked out. God's so good at working things out that you never know if that was his idea in the first place or not. So as it says, they went through Syria and Cilicia. So, so they were here in Antioch. And so instead of taking the boat over to Cyprus like he did on the first journey, as you see here, then instead this time they went by land. And this is all Syria up here. And so they started heading up this way and going on this second missionary journey. Now it says in chapter 16, when they came to Derby and Lystra, which is, if you can't see it on the map, Derby and Lystra are right here, these two cities. So these were places that they visited twice on the first missionary journey. But now on the second one, they head right over there as well. And it was when they were in that area. And now you can turn the uh, slide over to that black and white one that just shows the second missionary journey because that'll be less confusing if, uh, Mike, you can do that. Yeah, that's much better. <laughs> there we go. So see, they started here in Antioch, headed up here through Cilicia, Syria here, Cilicia, right by Paul's hometown of Tarsus, and then came up here into this area. And it was at this place that they found Timothy. And behold, a certain disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a certain Jewish woman who believed, but his father was a Greek. 
So his mom was a Jewish Christian. His dad was a Grecian, um, you know, a Gentile. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were at Lystra and Iconium. So this guy had a good reputation. Young guy, no doubt, sold out to the Lord. um, And people said good things about him. And uh, it says that uh, in verse 3, Paul wanted to have him go on with him. Now that's kind of interesting. Timothy didn't like ask if he could go. Oh, can I go? But Paul was looking for gifted young men with integrity because he understood the way he lived his life, he maybe wasn't going to live that long. And so he really wanted to invest in younger people in order to encourage them and, and later on young guys like Timothy and Titus and others who, and including John Mark, who Paul had trained, would then go on and be able to pastor and be used by God. Um, but we tend to think that, that you know, a young guy ought to just push himself and find a spot. But it's interesting in this case that Timothy was just being who God had made him, and Paul had his eyes out for him and saw, hey, this is the kind of guy that I would like to have involved in the ministry. And it's something that if a ministry doesn't do, the ministry will end up dying. And we're really blessed at our church to just have some young guys that I look at as being, hey, unless the Lord just returns, these guys are going to be around long after I'm gone. And so, you know, we have guys like Eddie and and Anson and Justin and other young guys who have a heart for ministry and in each of their cases, you know, I came to them. I, I saw these guys and I go, each of them, they have a heart for God. They love God. They're gifted. I know God's going to do great things. And so with each of them, I, I hunted them down and kind of recruited them to get more involved in ministry because that's a big part of what we need to do as a church. And it's so important that we not just become consumers There's no doubt about it that Paul was a better preacher, probably, and so was Barnabas, and so was Silas, than young Timothy or John Mark or Titus or any of these guys. But but the ministry is not just about getting the best delivery that you can get right now. Because, you know, you might go, yeah, well, you know, Dave, we want you to always teach because, you know, you have all this experience and... And we're used to you, and we don't really want to hear anyone different. Um, but in reality, there's going to be a day, unless the Lord takes us all in the rapture, there's going to be a day when I'll start losing it. And the things that I say aren't going to make any sense. And eventually, I'm going to be with the Lord. And so as a church, as a people, it's so important for us to identify young guys who can, who can be those that next generation who can be the ones who will do that. And I'm thankful that God has given us some of those guys and I'm always looking out for other guys who I can encourage to do that. Um, My nature is to hog up all the ministry because I just love doing it. But I also have to realize that like Paul, I need to look out for people who have a lot to offer. And so Paul wanted him to go and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in that region, for they all knew that his father was Greek. Now later, 
um, we see over in, um, in Galatians chapter 2 that they wanted Titus to get circumcised, but because he's a Gentile, Paul said, forget it, I'm not going to make him do that. But in this case, he encouraged Timothy to get circumcised just because since he was Jewish, his mom was Jewish, it would just open more doors. At this point, they're still going and teaching in the synagogues. And if, if Timothy, as a Jew who was circumcised, he would, be, he would be permitted to go and practice some of his teaching in the synagogues, and, and it wouldn't be a big fight when he would come to town. Commentators argue a lot about this. Some of them think that Paul just got weak at this point. But, I mean, remember, it was just in the last chapter that Paul was standing up and arguing that circumcision wasn't necessary. It was a work of the Spirit on the heart of a guy. But Paul was just being practical. Over in 1 Corinthians 9, he talks about this, and he said, you know what? To the Jews, I became as a Jew. I became all things to all men that by all means I might win some. So Paul was never stubborn, just going, I'm just going to be who I am, kind of like Popeye. I am that I am, and that's all that I am. Um, most of you are too young to remember Popeye. But... Um, or if you're old enough to really love Popeye, you're going, hey, don't pick on Popeye. But, but the whole thing is, Paul was flexible. And believe me, a, a guy as old as Timothy was at this point, Paul didn't just grab him and, and circumcise him against his will. This is part of what showed Timothy's dedication, that he was like, Paul goes, I'd like you to come with me on a missions trip. And Timothy's like, oh, I'd love to. And Paul goes, well, there's a little something that has to happen beforehand. And Timothy's like, whatever, I want to do this. So it, it might have also been his way of finding out if Timothy was a little more dedicated than John Mark had been from the beginning. So at any rate, he did it. And as they went through the cities, they delivered to them the decrees to keep, which were determined by the apostles and elders at Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and increased in number daily. Now, when they had gone through Phrygia and the region of Galatia, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word in Asia. After they had come to Mysia, they tried to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit them. So passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. So here's what happened. They were, they were coming up here. They hit these churches right here. And what they thought of doing, because there's a big gap here where there wasn't a lot going on between Antioch Pisidia, where they weren't very responsive, and then Troas. And so they thought, man, Galatia. Galatia's up here. Bithynia's up here. And Mysia is this area along here. So they thought it was logical. Hey, let's veer north. So they, they wanted to head up there. God stopped them. They wanted to go to Bithynia and Mysia. God stopped them. Next thing they know, they end up at Troas. Now, how did God stop them? We don't know. Um, it just says that the Holy Spirit, they were forbidden by the Holy Spirit to preach the word there in Asia Minor, in Turkey, at that point, after they went to the places that they had already been. And so maybe there was a prophetic word. Maybe God just told them, you know, hey, this isn't right for you to go up here. Um, maybe they weren't able to get transportation to go up there. 
at any rate, whatever happened, they took it as being the Holy Spirit, just saying, you don't want to, you're not supposed to go up there. And so it would have been a great opportunity. There were a lot of people up there in Galatia especially. Paul would later write a letter to the Galatian church, so people went up there, and he knew a lot of people there, but he didn't actually get to go up and minister there. So he ends up coming to the coast, and, uh, and, and then he figures out why um, the Holy Spirit was throwing the brakes on. By the way... Um, it's so important in whatever you do that you let God throw the brakes on. You, you always want to do everything like a one-day contract because you can head off in a direction and it's totally fine, but God may have something better for you. And if you're just stubbornly doing what you planned on doing, the kind of people who are obsessively making their plans and then nothing will stop them. They're just going to do it and they call it faith stick to whatever you want to call it, um, I call it stupid. Because a lot of times I've been going in a particular direction and then God just put the brakes on. And I always want to be able to put the brakes on and change directions. I want to stay real light on my feet when it comes to my life. And this is important for all of us to learn this. Otherwise what happens is you keep going in a direction and you realize, hey, where'd the Holy Spirit go? This, is, you know, this isn't working out. So don't get, I mean, and, and you'll always find out that, that God led you that far. In fact, maybe he'll even use the fact that you want to do something in order to get you moving in a particular direction. But man, he's like a, you know, a thrill ride, a roller coaster where a lot of times, boom, it dives, it climbs, it takes a sharp turn. And the funnest thing is when you close your eyes and you don't know when it's going to turn. And God's kind of like that. So expect that kind of a ride. And if you're just stubborn and you, you, you're one of those people who says, anything I start, I'm going to finish. Well, you're going to miss the Holy Spirit a whole lot of times because he likes to interrupt you. So that we'll find out whether or not you're really following him or whether you just want to follow your own agenda. And so they came to Troas and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. And a man of Macedonia stood and pleaded with him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Now, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia, concluding that the Lord had called us to preach the gospel to them. So Macedonia is in Greece. To get the whole big picture, you know, this is the Mediterranean, Israel's Right down here, there's Jerusalem. They started out in Antioch in Syria, right up here. Moved across Asia Minor, find themselves in Troas, and Paul has what we call the Macedonian mission. Now, if you, if you know your map, there's this big boot here, which is um, Italy, and then there's this big kind of reverse boot over here, which is what? Greece, right? Uh, the broke country. And so... Macedonia is this area of northern Greece. There's Achaia down here, Thrace over here, Macedonia over here. So they're in Troas, but they're saying, come to Macedonia. So that would be a whole new adventure for him. Maybe he had been there, but um, probably not. So here this vision said, now, now notice something else in verse 10. 
Um, look at pronouns. Um, before that, it's like in verse 7, it's they tried to go to Bithynia, the Spirit didn't permit them. Verse 8, passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. Now in verse 10, after he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go to Macedonia. So this is probably the point, and you're just going to see we in verse 11, and we on and on through most of the rest of this book, because this is most likely when Dr. Luke hooked up with him. And if Paul was there in Asia, and there was a Christian doctor, and now he's heading over into Greece, into Macedonia, it makes sense, it'd be nice to take your medical plan along with you when you go on those kinds of travels. And so this is probably why Luke joined him, at least to do medical care, but perhaps also, because Luke was an amazing writer, perhaps also just to chronicle what happened along the way, and maybe even to serve as an editor or a, uh, you know, an amanuensis when Paul would write some of his letters. But now it's we, and he goes, as soon as he had that vision, we started going, okay, how can we get to Macedonia? They still needed some things to happen for it to work out, but they believed, they concluded that the Lord had called them to preach the gospel. Therefore, verse 11, sailing from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and the next day came to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is the foremost city of that part of Macedonia, a colony. And we were staying in that city for some days. So as they, on the map you can see, they left from Troas here, came across, across to Thrace on the way to Macedonia, came to Neapolis, and then just off the coast is Philippi. And that was a very important city where Paul um, pastored a church there and some of the, made some of his most important contacts there. So they stayed in Philippi for a while, and, and that was like the capital of that part of Macedonia, western Macedonia. And on the Sabbath day, we went out of the city to the riverside. Um, you know, there's a lot of traffic going to Riverside on Saturdays, but they did it anyway, and uh, where prayer was customarily made. People would go out into the countryside in order to really spend time with God, those who were, who were serious about God. There's something about the city that sometimes doesn't yield itself well to getting alone with God. So heading out by the river, um, you know, for us going to the beach, things like that often present a really neat time to be alone with the Lord. And so we sat down and spoke to the women who met there. There were more godly women then than men, certainly, in that area. And there was a certain woman named Lydia who heard us. And she was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, which is back over across in, in Asia Minor, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Paul. Isn't that what you hope for, that your heart's open? Uh, you know, sometimes I'll talk to people and I can just see God opening their heart. Other times I talk to people, I feel like I'm talking to a wall. It's like, you don't, you don't even get what I'm saying. You're not ready for this at all. I, you can't take it personally if you can't get through to somebody. Um, and, and it's not even always just because that person is rebelling against what God is saying. Sometimes the timing just isn't right and God hasn't opened their heart. 
But Lydia was a special woman who had her own business. Um, purple fabric was the, you know, was the most desirable in those times because it took the most amount of dye in order to make it. And God opened her heart as they shared with her. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us, saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. So she gets saved, her whole family listens to the whole thing, they all get baptized, and then the, the apostolic missions trip moves into her guest room. Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her master's much profit by fortune-telling. So this poor little girl who was possessed and, and made a living mostly for her master's doing fortune-telling. And the girl followed Paul and us and cried out, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days, but Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. Now you might go, what were they complaining about? She was saying the truth. These men are the servants of the Most High God, and they proclaim to us the way of salvation. Well, we saw Jesus deal with this too. Sometimes, sometimes the demons would be saying the truth, but they were either saying it in a mocking way in order to make it sound ridiculous, or they were hanging around the missionaries in order to make it look like it was a circus. So kind of like joining up and going, yeah, I'm just like them, and I, you know, I'm a fortune teller. It would, it would be good for business for her to make it look like she was in cahoots with the apostles. And it irritated Paul so much that he just threw the demon out of this girl right away, and she was relieved from that. Sometimes people who agree with us, I just wish they would leave us alone. You know, a lot of times as Christians, our friends are some of the most problematic and embarrassing people. Those who, you look in the media and you look in the news and things like that, and these people who are so outspoken for Jesus and you're just embarrassed because they're, they're, they're just making him look like a nut. And um, unfortunately, I don't have the capacity to just toss them out, and I'm not saying that they're, that they're all demon-possessed either, but it's the same kind of deal where um, God wants to do his work in his way. And a lot of times people claim they're working for him and, and they're really more just embarrassing him. And he's patient with all of us, but in this case, the girl was delivered. But when her masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they weren't glad that she was delivered. They were bummed because they were making money off of her. They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities, brought them to the magistrates and said, these men being Jews exceedingly trouble our city and they teach customs which are not lawful for us being Romans to receive or observe. Basically appealed to the anti-Semitism, said these guys are Jews and they're creating problems against Rome. Then the multitude rose up together against them and the magistrates tore off their clothes. They were just furious and commanded them to be beaten with rods. And when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. And having received such a charge, 
he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. They weren't getting anywhere. They were chained down. They were told to be watched. And plus, they were just probably beaten to win an, within an inch of their lives anyway. And there they were, but at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. How could you not listen to them? It's midnight. But the highest praise that you will ever do is when you've been beaten up. The best and most intimate times that will be coming with the Lord are going to be those times when you're in stocks, when you're struggling, when things have been difficult. Anyone can praise God when things are going well. But to stop and praise God when you're going through a tough time, that shows that you mean it. That shows that, that you worship God and that you're with him, you're sticking with him. And, and so that may not be when, it, when your worship sounds the best, but that's when by far it's the most real. And man, Paul and Silas, after being beaten and locked up and treated this way, praying and singing songs and everybody else was listening. And there was a great earthquake, the prison shook, doors were opened, everybody's chains were loosed, and the prison guard woke up from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, figured the prisoners had fled, and he pulled his sword and was about to kill himself because they would kill him if any prisoner escaped. In this case, he figured they were all gone. But Paul called out from the dark with a loud voice and said, do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And then he goes, you got a flashlight? And he ran in. He fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and he says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? What is it that you guys are preaching? And they said to him, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. So this guy was a believer based on the fact that no one was gone. And so he said, how do I get saved? And they just answered simply, you just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. A lot of times people think that to come to Christ it requires a great depth of theological understanding that in order, and there are a lot of places where we just had a baptism this last week, and there are a lot of places where if you're going to get baptized, you need to take a class first. Like you need to learn everything that you need to learn in order to do it. Listen, coming to Jesus is as simple as believing on him, and you'll be saved at that point. Because they believed, they wanted to get baptized. And baptism in the New Testament is always somebody believes, therefore they are baptized. Nobody's baptized against their will. Um, you know, if getting saved by being baptized, whether you want to do it or not, was the case, we'd get super soakers and just drive around and squirt people and call them saved. But in this case, they believe. Now, he ended up telling them more than just believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved because he went to their house and shared the word with them, and also he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved and your house. That doesn't mean that everybody in his house would get saved if he believes on the Lord. 
Because as, as you see in that last, um, in that last verse, as he says um, that uh, uh, having believed in God, verse 34, with all his household. So that was the order. They believed the simple message of Jesus, and so then they were saved, and then they got baptized. So a great work there, and obviously, I mean, the jailer's taking Paul to his house, because Paul could have escaped. Um, he probably locked the other guys back up and then took Paul and Silas out, and they led him to the Lord. And when it was day, the magistrates sent the officers saying, let those men go. After, after what had happened, it's like, eh, just let them go. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul and said, hey, they sent a message and said, you can depart, so go in peace. And Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, uncondemned Romans, and have thrown us into prison, and now do they put us out secretly? No way. Let them come themselves and get us out. So the jailer's going, you can leave, and Paul goes, no, I think I'll stay. Do you understand I'm a Roman citizen? Being a Roman citizen, you're not allowed to beat me until I have a trial. So if they want me out of their jail, tell them to come and let me out themselves. He just really was getting mileage out of this whole thing. And what a powerful witness between Lydia, the jailer, and the others who came to Christ in Philippi. Um, the Philippian church was probably the strongest one that we see when you... When you read the book of Philippians, it's amazing how strong that church is. Well, how could you not be strong when you got started like this? And so Paul refused to leave, so the officers told that to the magistrates, and then they got scared because they're like, what? They're Romans? And then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out and asked them to depart from the city. So they go, all right, if you don't want us to be here. They went out of the prison, and they went to the house of Lydia. They saw all the believers, they encouraged them all, and they departed. You just didn't push Paul around. He just did what God led him to do. And so now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. So they left Philippi right up here, and they start heading along the coast here and came to Thessalonica, which is that little dot right there on the Aegean Sea. And so as they came to Thessalonica, which is the church that Paul wrote to with the book of the Thessalonians, um, there was a synagogue there, and Paul, as was his custom, went in, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the Scriptures. So for three weeks, Paul preached there in Thessalonica. Now, we don't know if Paul was in Thessalonica a little longer than that, but basically... Everything that the church in Thessalonica knew from what we can see from Paul, he taught them in three weeks. And when you read First and Second Thessalonians and see the depth of what they know, and also, interestingly, the fact that most of what they were asking questions about had to do with the rapture of the church and the prophecies of the Lord's return, obviously in three Saturdays, Paul had in three weeks, dealt with a lot of those kinds of issues. And a lot of what we know about future things comes just because of the Thessalonians having those discussions with Paul. But he reasoned with the scriptures, he explained and demonstrated that 
The Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. And he said, this Jesus whom I preach to you is the Christ, is the anointed one, the Messiah. And some of them were persuaded. And a great multitude of devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women joined Paul and Silas. So people were starting to get saved. But the Jews who were not persuaded became envious and took some of the evil men from the marketplace. They hired, hired just a bunch of, you know, just uh, sleazy dirtbag guys. And he gathered a mob and set all the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason where he was staying and sought to bring them out to the people. But they weren't home at the time, and so they dragged Jason, some of his brothers, to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Not a bad accusation. Those guys that are preaching Christianity, now they're here in Greece. Now they're here in Macedonia. And they turned the world upside down. They've rattled everything from Jerusalem heading south into Egypt, heading north, clear up to, through Syria, and now all of Asia Minor has just been inundated with it, and now they've come here and they're trying to cause trouble here. Um, would to God that it could be said of us that we turn the world upside down. Um, they were accused of that, and it's not a bad thing to be accused of. And they said Jason harbored them at his house, and and then tried to make it like, oh, they were going against Caesar by saying that Jesus is the king. They troubled the crowd and the rulers of the city when they heard these things. So when they had taken security from Jason, they taxed him. <laughs> they gave him a fine for having let Paul stay at his house. And the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So there in Thessalonica... They, they got into this trouble, and so they say, look, just head down to Berea. And so this is Berea. It's not too far from Thessalonica, and they went there. And so uh, when they came to Berea, they went into the synagogue of the Jews there too. And it says in verse um, 11 here, chapter 17, these were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica. The guys in Thessalonica didn't give them a real clear chance. Um, but the people in Berea were open-minded in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. These guys in Berea were a great example. They didn't just take whatever was given to them, but they heard what they had to say and they go, hey, we're open to it. And then they went back and checked the Old Testament to see if it would match up, to see if it was true. And it's always a good thing whenever you hear anyone's teaching to go back and check the Bible and see if it really says that. Um, you don't take anyone's word for it. Um, you, you listen to what they say and then compare it to what the Bible seems to be saying, and that's what they did. And therefore, they were fair-minded, they were honorable. Therefore, many of them believed, and also not a few of the Greeks, prominent women as well as men. So a lot of Gentiles, Jews too, but when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was preached by Paul at Berea, they came there also and stirred up the crowd. They brought this street gang over to Berea and started making trouble there. And so immediately, verse 14, the brethren sent Paul away to go to the sea. But both Silas and Timothy remained there. Paul was doing most of the talking, so Timothy and Silas hung out there and they just told Paul, you know, why don't you go take a 
take a break. So those who conducted Paul brought him to Athens. And receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him with all speed, they departed. So Paul, they thought, you got to get out of this whole region up here because you had problems in Philippi. You got beaten and went to jail. You come over here. You get run out of town. You go there and run out of town. So they took a boat down here to Athens, down at the southern corner of Greece and and it's the, the capital of Greece. And so Athens was a place where people were really open-minded and they thought this will be, you know, this will be pretty safe. Nobody's going to be really picking on him there. So for his own good, he went there and, and he saw, man, this is a great opportunity. So he said, told Silas and Timothy, get on down here. We got work to do. And so uh, meanwhile, when he was at Athens, it says in verse 16, while Paul waited for them at Athens, waiting for, for Silas and Timothy to catch up to him, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw that the city was given over to idols. Athens is just full of, of, of idolatry, and so it just bothered him. He hurt for them, and so he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshipers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there, anybody who would talk to him. And there were certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him and these were two different basically schools of thought the stoics were more keep a stiff upper lip and just endure things the epicureans were more who were like you know what just go ahead and have a party have fun enjoy life so together they were kind of working them over and some said what does this babbler want to say others say he seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. To them, that just sounded like another kooky religion. But they were into kooky religion. And so they brought him to the Areopagus, and they said, may we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak. They go, we're open to any religion, so why don't you let us know what yours is. The Areopagus is that, uh, it's also called Mars Hill. It was a place where people would just come and, and speak whatever they would want to know. So... He said, um, you're bringing some strange things to our ears, therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. They were making up religions right and left, hearing about religions of different types, and so they're like, go ahead, give us your best shot. And Paul loved that. He stood in the midst of the Areopagus of Mars Hill and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. They had so many gods, and then they thought, What if we miss one? So they actually have a god that was the unknown god. Kind of a little idol with a bag over its head, you know. <laughs> Some of you remember the unknown comic. But, and so he goes, you know what? I saw you have the unknown God. Let me tell you about him. Very clever. Now, that doesn't mean that the unknown God was they were really worshiping God. He was just using their own philosophy as a way to open a door to share with them. And anytime you share with people who are come from coming in left field, it really helps if you have some kind of cultural bridge to talk to them about something that you have in common. If you come across people and right away you're just telling them where they're wrong, they're not going to listen. 
But sometimes when you tell them what's right, it gives, and you show that you're familiar with their teaching, it gives you an open door. It's why I think Christians just shouldn't completely blind themselves to the culture that's around us and then not be able to build bridges. We are left here to build bridges. I remember one time years ago I did a funeral and for a guy who wasn't a Christian, and um, so they had the music playing before the funeral, and there, one of the songs was um, by the Rolling Stones, Wild Horses. And I'm like, this is weird. I'm waiting to do a funeral, and there's Mick Jagger singing. And, but it was neat because afterwards I got to talk to the guy's son, and he was the one who had picked the music. And I go, that was great. I go, I really liked hearing the Stones. He goes, really? I go, yeah, you, know, you notice in that song um, Mick Jagger sings, um, I have my freedom, but I don't have much time. I said, isn't that true? His dad had died you know, fairly young, and, and God just used that to, the guy ended up accepting the Lord, but he used it to just build a bridge that, you know, I'm not saying that all the music I listened to in my life has been used that way, but man, it, we need to know who people are in order to find a way to talk to them. And Paul's just a great example of this. So he goes, I, know, I saw your little God thing to the unknown God, and so I'm going to talk to you about him. I proclaim him to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might, they might grow up for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. So now he's quoting a pagan poet, and he's saying, you know how you've always felt like there's something more? You've always talked about something that was transcendent? You have all these limited gods, but the truth is there's a God who doesn't need anything from you. All of your gods want you to bring stuff to them. All of those priests want you to pay them and compensate them. And, but there's one God who's bigger than all of that. And he said, he's the God in whom we live and move and have our being. He's the God who supersedes over everything else, transcendent in that he is separate from his creation, but eminent in that he is close to us, as close as you could ever possibly be. And he said, just like one of your songs says, we're his offspring. So, if God is our father, as one of your poets has said, therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked when you thought that God was a hunk of stone, but now he commands all men everywhere to repent because he has appointed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. 
He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, and others said, we'll hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. However, some men joined him and believed, among them Dionysius and, and the Areopagite, a woman named Damaris, and others with them. So he finishes this message. He starts out totally in line with their philosophy. And even as he began to talk about the breadth of God and how he's close, but he's bigger and he's immaterial, that was okay. And then he goes, and by the way, he sent his son who died and rose from the dead. And he is telling you, you've been stupid, but it's time to wise up and turn around and repent. And when he started talking about somebody rising from the dead, they're like, this is crazy. But then it seems that some people, after they kind of laughed him out of the place and others said, well, maybe you'll come back again. Then people hung around afterwards and goes, hey, Paul, that makes sense to me. I, that sounds so good. If God is real and he loves us and, and he sent his son to die for us and he rose from the dead, I'm in. And so even there in Athens, a place where they were so jaded, they wouldn't respond to anyone. Yet as he delivered his message, right there in downtown San Francisco, he, he lays it out and basically people laughed at him, but then there were a couple people who were like, that makes sense. I don't want to say it out in front of everybody, but that totally makes sense. He didn't just stay in Athens because of it. A lot of people would say that it was a failure because he didn't have a huge number, but Paul did what he needed to do. He wanted to tell them. He wanted to share the word. He wanted to share the gospel, and so he did there in, in Athens, and man, I would have loved to have been there on Mars Hill and, and heard that message. What a This little guy with this powerful message that just, he roped them in, he got their attention, it was obvious that he was educated, and then he just dropped the resurrection on him, the gospel. And that was Paul. We see him doing that kind of stuff all the time. And so next week, Lord willing, um, we will finish up his second missionary journey and then move on into the third one. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us this time in your word. Every time we open this book, there's stuff that has to do with our life right now, and we thank you for that. I thank you for the testimony of Paul and Silas and Barnabas and Timothy and Luke and Mark and all of these guys who went out on these adventures in order to see what you would do. And Lord, I just pray that you would help us to be as sensitive to the Holy Spirit as they were. That if we're heading in one direction and you want to change that direction, help us to stay light on our feet and follow you as you take a turn, as you take a twist in our life. Help us to stay flexible. But Lord, help us also to listen to you so that we don't end up just continuing to do something when you've headed off in another direction. So help us to hear from you, obey you, and to boldly speak out your good news and help us to share it like it is good news. 
not bad. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.